Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for the latest school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and research. Now, to get the conversation started, here are your hosts, Jason and Abby. Class is officially in session. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019 and episode 21 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. I hope you all are enjoying your winter break and well, by now, I'm back, and I bet some of you are back. Some of you may be going back next Monday, but all in all, welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to 2019, and welcome back to work in your school or pediatric setting or wherever else you may be. Um, I know we have actually some uh, some educators that listen to this, so uh, welcome back. So last year, before we had the podcast, we kicked off the year with a blog post that kind of outlined what... Abby and I wanted to do here at the OT Schoolhouse, and part of that was actually beginning the podcast, and well, now we have the podcast. So instead of doing a blog post this time, we're going to just kind of do it on the podcast, concerning most of you listening now on the podcast versus uh, seeing the blog post that we have. So we're going to kind of focus on the podcast more this year. I know right now we're doing an episode once every two weeks, and I think our goal is to get it to be weekly for you all, and so we can bring on more guests, have on more discussions between Abby and I about what's going on in our school-based life and and what may be going on in your school-based life. And so we want to talk about IEPs, talk about services, talk about um, even deeper into goals, uh, maybe have some of our favorite guests back to talk about vision and talk about autism, and and that's actually where we're headed today is is autism. But first, I want to talk about two more things that are on our radar for the for the rest of 2019. And one is that we want to become AOTA approved as a provider of continuing education through this podcast. Right now, you can earn continuing education through the podcast, and it is completely viable for you to use for your MBCOT renewal. However, we're not AOTA approved yet. Um, not that it's a huge deal. But we would like to be officially recognized by AOTA as a professional development provider. And with that, I also want to acknowledge the Glass Half Full podcast. Um, they actually recently just got acknowledgement from AOTA as a CEU provider for several of their episodes. So they're doing similar concept that we are where you listen to the professional development podcast and then you can take that short quiz afterwards and so it's really cool to know that AOTA is backing them up and saying hey yes this is a viable uh, way to earn professional development and so that's kind of really uh, lifting for Abby and I because it's like whoa you know we had this idea and we didn't know someone else was working on it with AOTA so now we know that and you guys can be <laughs> be also confident, you know what, that this is something that will be able to be used as professional development for your state and hopefully, well, it's already available for NBCOT, but hopefully even more so for your state licensures going forward. So we're excited about that, I guess we could say. So hopefully that will come in 2019. And then the last thing that we are hoping to get out sooner than later is a larger course for you all. Actually, this will be a course that you would take online through our website, theotschoolhouse.com. And I don't want to release quite yet what it will be about, but some of you have taken a survey for us, and we thank you so much. Um, if you're still wanting to take that survey, I'll put the link in the show notes at otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 21. Um, we'll appreciate that if you do, um, but we're kind of headed in that direction. We're working on it. We got an outline, and uh, we're putting it together for you all, so hopefully that'll come sooner than later. Um, but with that, you know what? Let's jump into our very special guest today. As I hinted earlier, it is about autism, and our guest, her name is Meg Proctor, and she is an occupational therapist. Uh, she's actually currently on the East Coast, and we'll get into that a little bit, but um, super happy to have her on. She is a autism specialist in her own right, and she taught me a lot of valuable information through not only the podcast that you're about to hear, but also she allowed me to jump in on her course that she has, um, and that course is actually 
open right now. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit more if you want to dive in deeper with Meg. Um, but she's fantastic. Her course is amazing. Um, she gives a lot of information about autism. And today we're going to talk about the five essential strategies that any OT should know when working with a student with autism. All right. I know this has been a really long intro, but I wanted to share all those really cool things we got going on with you. So without further hesitation, let's jump into our interview with Meg Proctor of LearnPlayThrive.com. Hey, Meg, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Jason. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about kids with autism and some ways to help them out. So um, before we get into that, though, would you like to give a quick background information about who you are and what you're up to these days? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've had a little bit of a winding journey in my OT career to get to where I am now. Um, So when I started as an OT right out of OT school, I jumped right into early intervention and I was really excited. And then quickly I was like, what on earth am I doing? I wanted to do all these best practices like parent coaching and come to families' homes without a bag of toys, things that I had never seen anybody do and didn't know how to do. And I felt all this pressure like, oh, these families really need me um, and I don't know what I'm doing. And I was working mostly with young kids with autism. Um, So I made a little bit of a shift into school-based practice where I felt a lot more supported and I had a team and I could really get my feet under me as a new therapist. But I still felt in my very autism-heavy caseload that I was missing some really sort of important um, intervention knowledge about how to best support my kids with autism. So eventually, um, I moved back to Asheville, where home is from Chapel Hill, where grad school had been. And I got this amazing job at UNC Chapel Hill's Teach Autism Program as a clinical faculty member there. And I got trained and trained and trained and mentored and trained some more in autism. And that whole time I was thinking, oh my gosh, I just wish I had known all of this, all those years working in early intervention and working in the schools. Um, And I got trained to be a trainer for their program. And I was training teachers and speech therapists and psychologists from all over the world. I was like, where are the OTs? We need this so Uh, badly. So I eventually launched into my own private practice. I don't work for Teach anymore. Um, And I have a business called Learn, Play, Thrive, where I work with families of kids with autism. Um, And one of my favorite parts of what I do is I train therapists in how to work more effectively with their clients with autism. Great. That sounds really cool and really fulfilling. Um, At the very beginning, you kind of mentioned about going into into the kid's house without a bag of toys. Is that like a common thing or is that something that you're kind of just doing or I've never heard of (laughs) an OT walking around without a bag of toys behind him? Yeah. In early intervention, that's considered best practice now um, to use the materials that are actually available in the natural environment so that families can learn the strategies and keep using them after you leave. Um, But what OTs have done for forever is come in with the the Mary Poppins bag, (laughs) do lots of fun stuff and then leave. And it's kind of like, yeah, who cares? That was one hour of the week. And it doesn't matter when um, we're making it impossible for families to have carryover because we're bringing these special things. That's very true. We kind of come in with our special toys and then we're like, all right, your kid made progress. Now time to take the special toys away. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Good luck. Yeah, that's true. So I like your idea of using the toys that, uh, that they already have. And I think that goes for school-based therapists, you know, um, I think there's a little bit more of a push to be collaborative with the teacher and kind of use tools that the teacher has and, or provide tools to the teacher rather than, you know, kind of similar to what you were saying, you know, pulling the kid out, working with them on a special pencil or something, and then sending them back to their regular pencil in the classroom or something like that. That's kind of the equivalent to that. So I like that, that collaborative method, working with the parents, the kids, everyone involved, and so that they can continue to work on it even when you're gone. So very Right, cool. absolutely. I like it. So learn, per, learn, play, thrive. It's learnplaythrive.com, right? Yeah, that's it. All right. Well, um, 
Meg has a course over there that she kind of just referenced to. She is trying to train other occupational therapists out there and working with kids with autism. And she was very generous, and she actually allowed me to take the course. Um, and it was fantastic. It's uh, about six videos. About um, does it total? Was it a total of six hours? It was. Yep. All right. And it was very detailed. It was a lot of information. We'll get into it a little bit more. But first, Meg is actually here to give you some free information. And it's fantastic information. I can't wait for her to give this to you. And it's going to be all about how to, um, well, help help children with autism. That's what she's doing <laughs> with her with her larger course. But today, she's kind of here to do a little bit of a mini course. So Meg, I'm going to kind of let you jump right into this, you know, what are some of the essential ways that we can, the essential strategies, I guess I should say, that we can help kids with autism? Yeah. So one of the things that most of us sort of know about how kids with autism think and learn is we say they're visual learners. Um, And what that looks like is we say, oh, I should probably put some visuals on the things I'm making since this child is a visual learner. Um, And a couple of things on that. One, yes, Visual learning is a relative strength for kids with autism. Um, There's some research, there's a lot of strong research that receptive language is a relative weakness. So our kids aren't able to make sense of what they hear as well as their typically developing peers. And that's even true for kids with autism who can use a lot of language. Um, There's some newer research that shows that visual learning isn't always a strength compared to their typically developing peers. Um, It's just a relative strength since receptive language is so difficult for kids with autism. And that's not true for everybody. You may have heard Temple Grandin say, I think in pictures. I Mm -hmm. think some of our folks with autism are profoundly visual learners and have an incredible strength in that area. Um, But for some, it's really just a relative strength to their receptive language. So one of the things that I used to do when I worked in a lot of um, self-contained, very young children classrooms in the schools of kids with autism, and I had like the off-brand program of Boardmaker. I can't remember what it was called. And I put (laughs) one of those, yeah. Yeah, I put those like symbolic pictures on everything. And I felt like I was doing a good job, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was using visuals. And um, my young kids, you know, ripped them up or ignored them completely. And it really didn't help. And I just kept doing it because I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned that sort of made me rewind through everything I've done was that it's really important to figure out Um, what specific type of visual is meaningful for an individual child with autism? Just because visual learning is a relative strength really doesn't mean that those symbolic board maker pictures or clip art, whatever, is going to mean anything at all to them. Um, So I think it's really important to evaluate what type of visuals are going to be meaningful. And that might be objects. That's the thing that a lot of us miss. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, I think you're right. And that was one of my like first aha moments in taking your course. I was like, you're right. An, an actual object of a ball is like the first visual cue that you're going to give to a child. You're not going to go to this, to a photo. The first thing you're going to see, the first thing that child is going to be able to match is a red ball to a red ball, not a picture of a soccer ball that means a red ball or something like that. So um, having that actual object right there with you is really, you know, that's the first go-to. Yeah, absolutely. And and the reason is that doesn't require symbolic thinking. We're not teaching them that the ball represents something. The ball is just the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned lots of ways to use object level instructions in my learning activities, um, to use objects for a schedule rather than pictures or words, to use objects for a to-do list. Um, but you know, this stuff really isn't intuitive. I had to learn it and I, I like teaching it to mm-hmm. others. Um, and then some kids can understand pictures, but more like photographs rather than the, the clip kind of pictures. Um, and then there are kids, there are kids that understand board maker. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great. And you can usually tell that they, um, can make sense of it because they use it. Mm-hmm. Um, a child who understands symbolic pictures would be able to match the object to the symbolic picture. Um, and in whatever context would be able to show you that they're making meaning from the mm-hmm. visual you're providing. I, um, 
I learned a lot from having a, a child. You know, my my kid at like 15 months could look at a cartoon of a balloon and point to the balloon in the room. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I could give him a schedule of cartoon pictures and yeah. he would know what it meant, you know? Yeah, and that kind of comes to a little bit of mastery um, because oftentimes in the school district, we're writing goals and we'll write a goal for a kid to have 80% uh, mastery in something. I don't know. But we kind of, this 80% ever since I started growing or since I started in schools has kind of been like this magic number that if a kid can do something with 80% um, consistency, then it's considered mastered. How do you decide kind of where the child's mastery is and being able to identify object to object or object to symbolic image? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a really important one because, um, you know, we often want to use an emerging skill for something, let's say like a schedule. We're like, well, they could sort of read. Let's just write a written schedule. Mm -hmm. But if you imagine um, if I were to use an emerging skill for you, let's say you're learning Spanish and I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to write your in case of emergency instructions in Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you're on the side of the road in a rainstorm in the middle of the night, you know, something very stressful is happening. And you're looking at these that you could maybe sort of understand on your best day. But Mm. now that you're stressed, it's gone, right? I did not choose a mastered skill to give you your instructions. So it's so important that we don't try to pick an emerging skill just because it's easier for us or because we have some sense that the goal is to move up and up and up. The goal is not to move up, to move a kid from objects to pictures. The Mm -hmm. goal is to use whatever makes sense to that kid. Um, so honestly, I decide what type of visuals to use through a process of assessment. Can they match objects to pictures? Can they match pictures to symbolic pictures? Um, but then through a lot of trial and error of seeing what works mm-hmm. for a specific activity or for a specific type of intervention, and then going back to the drawing board and changing it if it doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, as far as Spanish goes, Donde Esta El Baño is like the only thing I got down, but <laughs> we'll yeah, see. Yeah. <laughs> I can read You'd a visual in schedule in Spanish. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, think, I, I think one place this comes up a lot is with our emerging readers. Um, yeah, and I you know, that. it can be tempting for teachers um, to use the schedule or the instructions as an opportunity to teach more reading. Mm-hmm. And I always say that giving instructions of any kind is not an opportunity to teach a new skill. And what happens if you do it the other way around? If you're using, um, maybe you're using. S- a picture of something, um, of a physical object, and the kid can do something more like actually reading. Does it, do you ever see kind of the kid back away because you're like, you're giving me this simplistic, this too easy of a picture to see, or is it better to go safer than sorry, I guess, or yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that going more concrete is usually safer than going more go. symbolic. Um, but I, I do have kids who eventually are like, I'm done with this. <laughs> and then I, I go back to the drawing board and try something different. I'm, um, you know, I consider myself an autism specialist and that doesn't mean that I make a plan and it works. You know, it means I go back to the drawing board based on the information that mm-hmm. that child gives me from what happens. So it's a constant process of trying something, learning from the kid's response and going back to the drawing board and trying something different. I love your definition of, uh, of specialist. That's great. Um, because it does not mean that we know everything. <laughs> that is for no. sure. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you kind of already started leading into this, I think. But the next step that I think you wanted to go over with um, with what we're going over today is teaching to the visuals. And so what does that look like? Yeah. So one thing that um, that I learned that I used to do and that so many of us do is we create these awesome visuals and then we teach our, our students not to use them. Um, so I'll give you an example. Let's say you're in the schools and you, I'll use a schedule again. You make a schedule and you're like, this is totally going to help. And you put it on the kid's desk and then you go off and you're like, okay, Jason, or I go up, I'll be the teacher. Okay, Jason, time for math. Look at your schedule. It's math time. You need to get up and go to math, right? What I'm teaching that child is that I, 
I am going to come and tell you what to do. I am mm-hmm. not teaching them that they need to look for the instructions. They need to look for their schedule. They need to follow the instructions from their schedule. And this has so much to do with how we prompt. We like to be very um, interesting and part of the activity um, and to get the kids' attention. But our kids with autism, part of the autism learning style is that they learn routines quickly. Mm-hmm. And if we're making ourselves part of that activity, well, that's part of the routine. I sit here until Miss Meg comes in with her big bubbly voice and tells me where to go next and points at the schedule and then I go. So we have to be really careful with our prompting to make sure we're teaching kids to use the visuals, not teaching them to use us. That's funny that you say that, actually, because right as you were saying that, I this kid popped into my head, and he's this type of student who he knows, he's very aware. He has autism, but he's very aware, and he... Um, when he does something bad, he will then prompt his teacher to say, don't do that. Like he wants that <laughs> that routine from the teacher to tell him that you're not supposed to do that. And he will literally prompt his teacher. He'll say, teacher, tell me, don't do that. <laughs> and then the oh. teacher will have to say, yes, yes, student, don't do that. <laughs> Oh, it's like goodness. he knows that he's not supposed to do it, but he has developed that routine. And like you said, she she's a very animated character. And so she, he gets a kick out of her responding and telling him not to do something. And so yeah. if maybe if she kind of toned it back a little bit, became a little bit uh, less animated and, and relied on the visuals that she does have for that student, um, it could go a different route. Absolutely. I, I remember a student that I had my second year in the schools who um, was a middle schooler with autism. And he had had a lot of behavioral therapy with a lot of reinforcers. Mm -hmm. And he was very bright. But if he answered a problem like on a math worksheet and you didn't say good job, he would erase it and look for a new answer. And that's kind of what I always pictured as prompt dependence because that's the extreme. Mm -hmm. But but we all do this in our own way, even when we're so. not, yeah. you know, handing out candy for right answers. We're doing it with our faces and with the way we're prompting. Mm-hmm. We're teaching kids to look to us still. Definitely. All right. So we went into kind of some gestures versus verbal prompts. Um, one of the notes I took during the course was air-free learning. What do you mean by air-free learning when it comes to visuals? Yeah. So um, when I say that we want to prompt differently, I don't mean we want to just kind of throw our kids out to the wolves, right? Like, um, you know, you just said gestures versus verbal prompts. I'm going to use a lot more pointing and helping them look to the visuals and a lot less trying to get their attention to me. Um, And let me be clear, I'm talking about when the goal is for them to access their visual instructions independently. I do a ton of work on social engagement, and those are the times I want them looking at me. I Mm -hmm. want that engagement. When I'm teaching a child to follow instructions, it's not about them engaging with me. It's about them engaging with the instructions. Um, But I don't want to just, like, point and hope it works, right? So um, there's a lot of good research showing that our kids learn, our kids with autism, learn best by getting something right the first time. Rather than by making a mistake and having us go, that's wrong. (laughs) Um, And that probably relates to the routines and to the receptive language piece. So I will jump in before a child makes a mistake and give them as much support as they need to get an answer correct or to, to do a process correctly the first time. And then I'll be really intentional about fading out how much um, I'm supporting them and how much I'm prompting so that that isn't the routine. The routine is they're learning how to do the activity and how to do it correctly. Gotcha. Yeah. And so do you have a hierarchy of prompts a little bit? I don't know if you, so obviously verbal, I, well, I don't know. What's the highest level of prompts that you would use? or that you consider the most restrictive or the most um, needy prompt for a student? Yeah, I think um, doing part of the activity for or with them. So um, physical assistance, I don't do hand over hand. It's not, um, it's not philosophically comfortable for me to move somebody's body. Um, but I will hold a material with a child. I work with a lot of young kids. So if we're doing like a shape sorter, I might hold the block with them and help them get the block in. Um, so I think that that type of physical assistance with permission from the child um, is the highest level. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I 
I can't stand hand over hand either, especially working in the schools. Um, there's so many <laughs> things that can go wrong. And, um, you know, I think all OTs have to deal with this, but even more so male OTs, it's just being in the schools. Um, we have to be very careful of, you know, what prompting is going on. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of stay away from the hand over hand prompting as much as possible. Of course, there are times that it, it is needed, um, but it's kind of that very much only as needed. You know, we want, like you said, we want to set up our kids to be successful and, and be engaged and how engaged are they really when we're doing hand over hand prompting. So, um, Absolutely. yeah. All right. Well, I think the next step um, that you had listed here was the informal assessments. And so um, we all, of course, do, you know, in the schools, we often use the bot to the, um, the M fun, the RAVMA, things like that. But um, a lot more OTs, I think, are using informal assessments because we can, we need to be able to see the actual routine that the kid is doing. Um, is that similar for you? You're trying to see the actual routines that the kid might need to do in the home? Yeah, so I um, I think that our kids are our best teachers. So we can know all kinds of things about autism learning styles and about whatever the occupation is. But if we're not actually watching that particular child do that particular activity, we're really missing an opportunity to learn from them about what they need from us to be successful. So, um, you know, if I think about, well, again, one of the things I used to do in the schools is I'd get some sort of goal for a kid to, like, color in the lines and in my first session, I would start teaching. Mm -hmm. And what I should have done is start with an informal assessment. Same thing in the home. Um, I don't know if, if you guys have these uncomfortable conversations with teachers that I've had with parents where you're like making suggestion after suggestion after suggestion. And they're going, yeah, we've tried that. It didn't work. Yeah, we've tried that. It didn't <laughs> yep. work. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a waste of time. And you know what we're really missing? Well, there's several things missing in that example. <laughs> um, but one of them is that process of informal assessment. Show me what's happening now. Show me what you've tried. What would you like this to look like? Um, that's if you're working with a caregiver or consulting with a teacher, but really just sitting down and putting the materials out and seeing what the child does without you teaching. Um, here, I'll use my least to most prompting. Mm -hmm. So if I put those crayons and the paper down and they don't do anything, I'm not going to end my informal assessment because I've learned something, but I haven't learned enough. Yes. I might then give a prompt, color the picture. And if they still don't do anything, I might hand them a crayon. And if they still don't do anything, I might start coloring and then hand them a crayon. Mm -hmm. But now I'm really learning, okay, what does it actually take for this kid to get started and understand the instructions? And then what do they do? Um, but if I just started by giving a demonstration and handing the crayon, I have no idea what their baseline is. That's true. That's very true. I like that. Yeah. Because, uh, again, going back to the different types of prompts, you know, we sometimes um, will jump, jump ahead just for the sake of time or for the sake of um, – just getting an assessment done to get it done versus getting it done to really understand what the child can and can't do. And so, like you said, we will skip ahead and we'll just give the kid the crown or we will just, or even go further. And uh, like you said, we'll color for them and then have them color versus just seeing what will they do with the crown or what will they do? And so we need to take that step back. Yeah. And this isn't just something that we should do during the actual evaluation. It's something we have to come back to time and time again to see where we're at. Um, for me, I, when I work with fieldwork students or even in my own practice, when I feel stuck, when I'm like, I have this goal and I don't have any idea where to start, mm -hmm. it almost always means I haven't actually done an informal assessment because we can't come up with interventions in the abstract mm -hmm. um, or not really. I mean, if you're working on the same thing over and over, you might sort of be able to. But when we feel stuck and then watch something, it's like, oh, that's where you're stuck. It's not just I'm supposed to teach you to brush your teeth or cut on the line. It's I'm supposed to teach you um, to sequence the steps or I'm supposed to teach you how to turn the paper, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other opportunity we miss when we don't do informal assessment is sometimes we 
miss the um, opportunity to see that we're being successful. Um, I do some one-on-one consultation with therapists, and I had a therapist who was working really hard on teaching play. And she finally sat down and did this very structured play session, and it went awesome. Mm -hmm. And she was like, did I? Maybe he could already play. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe that was unnecessary. And, and I don't think that was the case. I think that she hadn't started with an informal assessment, so she couldn't see that her the intervention growth. was what created the success. Yes. No, and, you know, I just started at a new school district this year. And so, you know, my caseload of 55 kids or whatever, I was brand new to. And um, I didn't do their initial evaluation or their recent triennial evaluation or whatever. Um, And so that's kind of the first thing I really had to do is, you know, meet the kids and then kind of do that little informal evaluation. Because I'm walking into these into these IEPs um, or looking at their documents and, you know, they have two or three goals that I'm supposed to be working on. And of course I've never met the kid. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I started too, is with a little bit of an informal play slash, I mean, yes, it was play for the kid, but for me it was an informal evaluation to see where they're at and kind of what that next step is. So um, one of the things that I think OTs sometimes get flack for is not taking data. And I think through that informal occasional informal um, assessment, you can kind of get a little bit of data that helps you, helps you not only reason, but also helps you show the parents or show the teachers or show the parent advocate or whatever, what progress has been made come time for progress reports and the annual IEP. So um, yeah, I think we all need to be doing more informal assessments throughout the course of um, the treatment. Because we do need Absolutely. to kind of see that progress, like you said. So, all right. So, what's next? Um, well, I sort of mentioned this when you were asking me about how to figure out what type of visual to use for a kid. And mm-hmm. this is the idea of when something's not working, going back to the drawing board and restructuring our intervention. Um, and I think this is important enough that it's worth, you know, tackling as its own strategy. Um, because what we often do as therapists is we develop an intervention and then we teach it. And if it doesn't work, we teach it and we teach it and we teach it and we teach it more. And that is especially true if we spend a lot of time making it and we laminate it. I'm going to use this intervention. Um, and this really ties in with the informal assessment. If, if I were, um, teaching a child to, I know uh, an activity I've seen a lot in the schools is the one where you teach a kid to like organize the letters of their name into oh, yeah. order. Mm-hmm. Um, I would make that really quick and dirty and do an informal assessment with how they do with it. Um, because I might learn, oh, this child wants to Velcro on top rather than underneath. Or this doesn't make sense at all to this child, but I know he likes activities where he can put something in. So maybe if I make it into a put-in activity where it says J-A-Y-S-O-N and there's a little slit and he's going to stick the letter in the box. I can do that. Or, you know, I could learn any myriad of things from Mm -hmm. trying this activity, seeing what the child tells me. They throw it on the ground. It doesn't make any sense to them. (laughs) Um, They do it incorrectly. Um, And then restructuring it to make it more appropriate for that child's learning style rather than insisting that they learn the way I have created the activity, which is frustrating for everybody. Yeah. I, I like how you, I mean, we're constantly restructuring. That's kind of why we have this job as an occupational therapist. Um, and as an OT, the different ways that we can restructure include not only what we've been talking a lot about today, the visual instructions, but also changing the environment. And so how are some ways that you've changed the environment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you find that you're in a session with a kid and your whole job is just trying to get them back to the table. (laughs) um, (laughs) I know I have lots of those. Um, I try to see from the perspective of the child that that the environment speaks to them. So are they staring at the wall of toys where they're sitting? Um, are they sort of in an open space in the middle of a room? I've worked with a lot of more concrete younger kids who, um, when they're kind of in a little nook, not mm-hmm. trapped, 
at all, but like there's some furniture on either side of them and they're sort of nestled at their Mm -hmm. little table space. Um, that space says to them, Hey, stay here. Like there's nothing else calling to them. Mm -hmm. And one time just as an experiment, I took a kid where that was going great. And I put the table in the middle of the room and she literally ran in circles around the table the the whole (laughs) session because that's what the space was saying to her. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is again, somewhere that we want to think about, um, what makes sense to a child, the like blue tape on the ground to say like, here's where you're supposed to be maybe, but that's super symbolic, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the mat to stand on maybe for some of my kids, I actually just rearrange the furniture so that the space is like, Hey, rest of the room is boring. This is where you're supposed to be. There you go. Cool. All right. And then I think this was my favorite part that you wanted to talk about now was actually expanding the occupation. And um, I work in a high school. And so we've been doing community outings and stuff, which this is kind of my focus point right now is expanding their occupations that they're learning in the classroom out to different environments. So um, what does expanding the occupation mean to you? That is so awesome that you get the chance to do that. That's so important. Um, well, you know, we, we always give this like token reference to our, you know, kids with autism have trouble generalizing, so we have to help them generalize. Um, but what I find is that, um, more often than not, we kind of forget or don't get around to actually doing Mm -hmm. it. Um, and that can mean a lot of things. Um, one, it can just mean teaching a skill with different materials. So, okay, you can um, sort by color with the little bears. Can you sort by color with chips? Um, or let's see, I know so many of my examples are for young kids. Um, you can solve these math problems in in this room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do it in this other space with this other teacher, you know, because our, our kids are, are forming routines around what they do and where they do it. Um, so we want to make sure that they can use their skill with different materials in different places and with different people. And I don't, I don't usually start there. Um, I don't usually start if if you're teaching a child or cycling, I don't usually start by going out to the community where it happens. Um, because what I know about the executive function piece of autism learning styles is it's hard to figure out what to pay attention to when there's a lot going on. So I'll teach with learning activities at the table where I know I can help the child see the main point versus the details, learn the activity. And then I know I need to explicitly work on generalizing and helping them get out to where they're going and use that activity there and then make sure they can do it with their teacher, not just with me. Make mm-hmm. sure that they can do cans versus cardboard, not just cans versus bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure whatever skill I'm teaching, they're to do it in different places with different people and with different materials. Yeah, definitely. Because I think that's one of the biggest things that um, when I get pushback in an IEP, especially a more high profile IEP where there's an advocate or something like that, that's often the first question that um, one of the first educated questions that I will get is, you know, okay, you said this child met their goal. In what environment did they meet their goal? And so, well, if I say they met their goal in a one-on-one setting in the therapy room and, you know, this kid's occupation is to be functioning in the classroom, then did they really meet this goal? Well, not really, because they're only with me, you know, 30 minutes once a week um, versus we need to make sure that they're meeting all these goals in the classroom where they're supposed to be accessing their education or on the playground if that's where the social um, difficulties are or wherever the actual occupation is taking place. And so, um, yeah, I completely agree that we need to be expanding that outward. We need to be helping these kids in their natural environment, not just in that therapy setting. So, um, yeah. So any other tips and tricks that you want to give a quick shout out to? I don't know. Is there something on your mind? Um, no, I have so many, I could, I could ramble on and on, but those are the, I have those five sort of laid out in a little free ebook on my website. Um, and in a bunch of Facebook live videos as well in my Facebook group, OT and autism. So I'll, I'll stick with that for today. (laughs) Sounds good. And we'll be sure to put all, all the links to those various sites on, um, on our show notes. So, um, that was at, uh, learnplaythrive.com. 
Um, you also mentioned your Facebook group, which I know I'm a part of. And so we can put a link to that. And was there one other thing? Oh, well, you mentioned the Facebook videos that you have that are on your Facebook yeah. group. So yeah, yeah, no problem. We will definitely put some links up to those. So um, again, thank you for learning, for allowing me to learn all of those tips, plus many more in your course. Um, that was super, super helpful. Um, all the activities that you have kind of fit right into the course. Um, I love some of the little... Uh, the little animated videos that you had for your case studies. Those are all fantastic. Um, I enjoyed those. Um, so one thing that I wanted to ask you is I learned so much in that course. What do you feel that these strategies can be geared toward kids who don't necessarily have autism or do you feel like these are pretty autism specific? That's a great question. Um, so I think that when we are working with a child, we need to think about that child's learning style. And the strategies that I lay out in the course have to do with how kids with autism think and learn. Um, so if you are working with a child with a different strength and a different set of um, differences, um, you might want to use you might want to tweak what you're doing. That being said, um, there's a lot of similarities between learning styles with ADHD and learning styles with autism, especially the executive function piece and also often some of the rigidity. Um, and I know in the schools, you see a lot of kids with autism and with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And these strategies are very effective for students with ADHD as well as students with autism. Um, I think some of the principles are important no matter who your student is. But I think it, it could be sort of a sticky trap to think that, um, you know, visuals are going to enhance every child's learning when you might have a child who's really a poor visual learner mm -hmm. who doesn't have autism. So just really individualizing and thinking about, okay, what is this child's strength and what is their learning style and how can I tailor what I'm doing to them? Yeah. I want to ask you one question. It's kind of a specific question, but, um, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But so I made a visual schedule for this kid's morning routine. And so, you know, it's um, get out your backpack, put your lunch wherever it belongs, turn in your, or get out your homework, turn in your homework. And then he actually goes to the RSP classroom at the end of his, um, the end of the schedule. And so we made it so that he can, um, completely just cross everything out and this is a little older i want to say like third grade kid um and so he he can read he can do stuff like that so it's a little symbolic picture with um with some language or with some words on it my problem though is that he won't often initiate it until like if he sees me like sometimes it got to the point where i would kind of just stop into his classroom real quick just so he could see me because that gave him that prompt to start that cue so just based on that limited information, would, do you have a recommendation that I could potentially try? Yeah, that's interesting. Initiating is hard. Um, so one thing that you could try is to have a, um, a pencil that he always uses. Maybe it has like a little flag on it that says check schedule or has a little picture that oh, represents okay. the schedule. Um, and have that maybe Velcro to his cubby where he puts his backpack, whatever mm -hmm. routine he has. Oh, that's so a you'd want to teach him the routine of like hanging his backpack and then grabbing the pencil. And then it's uh. the pencil that's going to tell him you're supposed to go to your schedule. Um, and that's not going to be meaningful to him right away. You have to teach it. Of but course. again, you're going to be teaching in a way that you're boring, you're pointing, mm -hmm. you're silent if you can be, and you're fading yourself out mm -hmm. so that he's learning to come in, hang his backpack, look for the pencil, for that pencil to tell him to go to his schedule and to get started from there. Sometimes having something physical to carry and do can be more compelling than just like a routine. I do like that idea because that's already part of his natural routine is to put his backpack down. And so if that that object or whatever it was was right there, he would see it as he's doing it and it would just be a continuation of already a, a current routine that would just kind of lead into the next thing. So I like that idea. Good yeah, job. I put you awesome. on the spot and you succeeded. Good job, Meg. Well, you know, do do your informal assessment. You might have to restructure that idea. <laughs> Very true. But it gives me a place to, a place to kind of start with. So yeah. appreciate it. All right. Well, Meg, I definitely want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, it was 
it was great having you talk about so many different areas that can help our kids in the schools or for any OT that might be working in, um, like you, early intervention or in the, in the other areas, pediatrics. But um, before I let you go, I want to ask you, you know, I took your course. I learned a lot from it, but I want to hear from you. What do you feel like, what are people going to get out of your course? What do you hope that every therapist that will take your course will, will learn? Um, yeah, so there's a, a whole lot of, of content. It's things that I probably learned five or six times before I stopped getting something new every time I learned it. Um, so I think no matter what your level is, you're going to get something different. But I really want therapists to have a framework that lets them consider autism learning styles really in depth, consider autism learning styles, not their visual learners, but have a really deep understanding and appreciation of the complexity of how a person with autism thinks and learns and actually use that to help us shape our um, interventions. You know, you took the training. It's not, Mm -hmm. there's not much theory. It's a lot of practical applications. So I want people to have these frameworks that they can use and then individualize for their particular learner. Mm-hmm. And today we talked a lot about a, a lot about visuals, uh, but what else is in the course that you enjoy talking about? Yeah, so I go deep on autism learning styles. Um, I teach a behavior problem solving process and I have sort of a workbook that um, folks can go through on their own or together with teachers. Um, And that's the process I use in my own practice. It gets me better, more relevant hypotheses and interventions every time to make Mm -hmm. a behavior plan that's not like, oh, the child obviously wants attention. Like that's not usually a super relevant hypothesis. Teach them how to think about um, what is causing a behavior from the perspective of autism. Um, We do schedules. We do visual to-do lists, which is, um, you know, everything can't go on your schedule. And when we try to put everything on a schedule, it gets kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the longest module is actually about play and leisure, which is so, so important to all of our kids. Talk about self-care. Um, and then at the end, we tie it all together with how we can take these skills and help our kids be successful moving out into the community. So each of those modules has a whole lot of content, a lot of specific examples, a case study, and then an opportunity for the therapist to apply the knowledge to their own practice and come up with a plan they can use right away. Absolutely. And the last case study really made me think, um, you kind of, in a way, forced us to give you multiple uh, hypotheses as to why this behavior was occurring. And like you kind of said, you know, the first thing that came to me, the first hypothesis was attention seeking. Um, But, you know, you kind of, and typically I would stop there. I mean, I might see a kid doing, in my informal observation, I might see a kid do something, I might think, okay, that's attention seeking. But because we had it on paper and the way that you structured that, um, that worksheet, it made us come up with another and another hypothesis. And I think my third hypothesis might have been just amazing compared to he just wants attention. And so by forcing us to kind of go through all the different hypotheses that may be possible or hypotheses, um, it just kind of makes you think a little bit deeper, a little bit more outside the box and you kind of come up with conclusions that you wouldn't have come up with without going through all the steps that you lay out in that, um, mostly that last course, the, um, the community based learning or generalizing, I should say. And so, um, so yeah, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for allowing me to take the course. Um, for anyone out there who, who wants to take the course, I highly recommend it. And I actually, I'm going to let Meg tell you where she, where you can learn more about the course. Yeah. So if people go to learnplaythrive.com and click on the, the four therapists part, they'll see a link to the course. Um, it opens for specific enrollment periods. I like to kind of um, work with my therapist through the course and, and be there to support them. So um, I do have it open right now at the beginning of January. And um, I am enrolling new students in the course and the enrollment period will close, but it'll open again in a couple of months. So I'd love to give your listeners um, a little bit of a discount just for being awesome and listening to the podcast. Um, So they can use 
schoolhouse25, um, schoolhouse all one word, and then the number 25 to get $25 off their um, enrollment in the online training or the live training if they happen to be oh. in the North Carolina area. <laughs> That's where you're going to be, North Carolina? Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for that so much. That was unexpected. I appreciate that. Um, it's kind of fun when you're able to come on and, and help our listeners. So I appreciate that so much. Um, so yeah, definitely be sure to check out Meg's uh, website at learnplaythrive.com. And also she has a Facebook group, right? You have a Facebook group? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Please join the Facebook group. Um, This is where people come to ask questions. We problem solve together. I'm always coming on and doing little mini trainings um, via Facebook Live that aren't also on my website. Um, I make announcements in the Facebook group when I open new trainings. So um, that group is called OT and Autism. So if you search for it, you'll find it and um, we'd love to have you there. Perfect. Yes. And definitely join us there because I'm in there too. And so um, <laughs> it's a fun group to be active in. And and Meg is awesome because she does just come on. Like, I feel like I see your face coming on a live video once a week or at least once every other week or so. I see a video up there, it seems like. And so um, it's very nice that you do that for everyone in the, in the group. So um, yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it, and I hope everything's going well for you. I, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you also again for allowing me to take the course. Um, it was so much fun and so much information that I learned, and I'm already using it. I mean, even the visual schedule that I created was like smack dab after watching whatever um, module it was in your video. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to be perfect. I can just kind of make a simple visual and try it out. And see what happens. Oh, I love that. That's like <laughs> one of my favorite takeaways is everything doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be beautiful. Let's just try something. Exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> so you made an influence on me. So thank you so much. Um, but yeah, so all right. Well, we will say goodbye. And um, I hope you have a good uh, 2019. All right. Thanks, Jason. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was Meg Proctor of LearnPlayThrive.com and of the OT and Autism Facebook group. Be sure to check out learnplaythrive.com. The course is currently open here at the beginning of January. And like she said, she opens it and closes it periodically because she likes to be very intimate with a few amount of therapists that she really allows into the course. So be sure to check her out at Learn Play Thrive, or it sounds like she's also doing some live sessions now of her training. So if you're on the East Coast in North Carolina, be sure to check those out too. She's very much a... Uh, animated character and and she's great to learn from so be sure to check it out also be sure to check out otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 21 for any of the show notes and links and a copy of that discount code so you can get over and get 25 dollars off of her course all right everyone well take care and we'll see you next time on the ot schoolhouse podcast thank you for listening to the ot schoolhouse podcast For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to OTSchoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.